listening to Conversations with Shonda, a Minneapolis Foundation podcast that unpacks the community's grittiest, most vexing problems. So we're mixing things up a bit. We've invited a guest host, our very own Minneapolis Foundation president and CEO, R.T. Ryback, to speak with meteorologist Sven Sungard about the urgency of climate change. This conversation was taking place near the Mississippi River in Boom Island Park, overlooking the beautiful skyline of downtown Minneapolis. And as a bonus, there's a video version of this interview. You can find the video in the description of this podcast, or just head over to conversationswithshonda.org. Enjoy the show. We are here with my friend, Sven Sankard, who is somebody who people all around the community know you pretty well, Sven, uh, many, many years on television, um, but also as somebody who's been a, uh, a meteorologist and a scientist, and I would say also somebody who's been a real guiding light for those of us who want to bring the, the message about climate change and uh, urgency forward. So it's really a pleasure to be with you today. Pleasure to be here. I should have mentioned your most important credential, which is you're a science advisor to the Minneapolis Foundation's Climate Reaction Series, yep. which is our series on the intersection of climate and equity. And um, thank you for really putting together some great videos for us that, that really help people walk into this issue that's complicated and also as simple as saving the planet. So happy to do it. And, and, and very happy that you and other organizations are, are really taking an initiative to do something about this and on a local level too because I think people think big picture all the time with climate change which it is but we got to think about these local issues too and, and there's adaptation and then there's also prevention you know it's, it's multifaceted as you know. Um, one of the things I want to start with is what is it going to take to raise a generation that understands science and the depth that this next generation is going to have to, I might add that this current generation hasn't done a good enough job at. Um, and I say that to you not only because of just your general interest in climate, but you've really done some really interesting work. I've followed you as a, as a person giving the weather, but I remember a series you did called Strictly Science, which was you explaining science to kids, never talking down to them, but helping to distill this. Can you start with how you got interested in this as, in a ki as a kid? And then as you tried to bring that onto television, how do, we, how do we talk to our kids about science without scaring the heck out of them about what's going on, but have them understand urgency? Yeah, that's, that's a good question that I don't think anybody has a full answer to, but we gotta start somewhere and, and try. And the thing I like about talking to kids is they're genuinely curious. They don't know a lot. You're kind of starting with a, a blank slate and they're just fascinated by whatever you're telling them. You know, like when you tell a, a, an eight-year-old for the first time the speed of light and talk about how light moves way faster than sound and you can use the example of lightning and thunder, they're mesmerized, you know? It's move over Santa Claus, who cares? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's cool. And, and the thing about, you know, igniting the interest in youth is that can lead to a career or maybe them being more involved in something in science anyway and you know besides climate change you know one of the big issues has been getting um, more women and people of color into the science fields and this is a way to do that you know instill that interest you know 
at a young age, you don't know yet. You haven't been told or taught yet that you can't do the things that society, you know, historically has said, no, you can't do that. You know, that's not in your that's not in your realm because of the color of your skin or your sex or uh, the income that you your family has. So, um, you know, all the possibilities are open. And, you know, to get to the climate change thing, I think this generation growing up now really gets it. Um, every whether I've taught you know, I taught at a private school, but I've, you know, part of the job of being a TV meteorologist was going to schools routinely and talking about weather. And I, I, I would talk about weather, but increasingly over the years, I made my talks specifically about climate change because I knew that they're getting general weather information in school, but um, climate change is the thing that I, a lot of schools are trying to struggle really with how do we teach that and keep up to date on it? You know, it's not it's not like the algebra book you can have that was, you know, I don't know about you, but when I went to school, every book we had was like 30 years old. Right. And I liked looking through the names in the front and say, oh, look, <laughs> you know, Shannon had this book in 1979. And here I am <laughs> 20 right. years later using the same book. You can't have a textbook on climate right. change unless you're revising it every year. And of course, schools would have a hard time paying for that. So, um, yeah, I just think they're receptive. They know that this is an issue that they're going to have to deal with. And, you know, I routinely say, you know, as these things come out that when they grow up, they're going to be not very pleased with their, you know, parents, grandparents, great grandparents generation, because this is not something that's popped up. You know, we've, the alarm bells have been there for decades and we've just wasted so much critical time that um, the mess is going to be bigger. And, and unfortunately, they're going to have to do a lot more work in a shorter period of time because of our inaction for yeah. the last few decades. Let's flip that generational piece because, you know, I think <clears throat> I would imagine you're in some of the conversations I'm in where people say, well, we've really messed this thing up, but oh, isn't it wonderful? This generation is coming up that's going to do so much. As if you'd take your house that's falling down and needs a new boiler and throw the keys to the kids and say, yeah. fix this for me. Adults, <laughs> often, I think right now, clueless about this. What is some of the insight you have about how to walk people into this conversation who maybe you know care about it but need to understand the incredible urgency of this how do you how do you how do you get get them clarity on what actually is going on yeah i mean because you're right we, we don't just have to hand this off to the next generation and say oh we you know we messed it up and oh well no because there's stuff that we can do now and actually there is stuff that we have to do right now in these next five to ten years um i think everybody has understood you know the point has been made increasingly clear that we have to take really bold action and quickly to really prevent some of the most catastrophic scenarios that that the ipcc has outlined and, and others um and i think it's we have to keep pounding home the idea that this is really is a priority because you'll see things ranked um you know whenever the polls are done and you know finally we're at a point now where i think it's 60 percent of americans realize climate change is an issue you know it's taken a long time to get there <laughs> yeah. and I think us in Australia of, of the industrialized countries have always been drug kicking and screaming uh, but we're finally there but you always see economy whatever else you know unfortunately you know the state of democracy it, it's a big deal right now but um, we need to prioritize climate change more and realize that all those other issues that you think are more important maybe this election cycle are tied into climate change because this is going to get worse 
you know, California. It, it, it was nice to see climate change r routinely ranking high on their list for the governor's recall election because they're on fire right now and, and their fire season is way worse than it ever used to be and it's not going to get better. Um, and I think people are seeing enough local disasters in their own communities. They're kind of everywhere in the country this year, really for the first summer ever, everybody experienced some form of a climate change disaster undeniably made worse because of what we've done to the planet. And so, I mean, it sounds bad, but I'm hoping mother nature sent a message to a lot of people this year so that um, in the next year or two, when we have more elections, you know, cause that's the number one thing I tell people who feel powerless, vote, vote for the people. It doesn't matter what party they're in. Unfortunately, it's become that most people who care about this issue now are in one party, but it didn't used to be that way, as you know. Um, George H.W. Bush, Nixon. I mean, Nixon looks like a hippie now for all the stuff he did in the 70s. Uh, you know, Clean Air and Water Act, Endangered Species Act, all these things. Um, we just need to get back to that, everybody coming together and realizing this is a big deal that we have to, we have to fix. And we don't want to pass this off to our, it, it kind of becomes, you know, uh, any politician in their last term, you start to think about legacy, right? Well, this has to be, we have to think about this as legacy that we will be judged in the future. Just like we look back at some of the founding fathers and be like, well, how did you have slaves? That, how, how did you, did you, get how did you right? weasel your way around thinking that was okay? And, right. you know, because you had to struggle with that somehow in your head at some point. We don't want the future to look back and say, what were they thinking? I mean, it was, the world was on fire all around them. What, what, how did they justify not doing anything? Step on that one for a second, because that's such a good analogy. Uh, you know, how could the founding fathers have possibly written a document that was so visionary with the idea that it didn't extend to everybody. I mean, now it's so clear. What is it right now? And I, I mean, obviously, you're not going to solve it. <laughs> everybody can, but but the, what is that blind spot that you've been in so many places where you're trying to explain this to folks and they shut down and all that? How do you think people get to that point, and 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 how do we get them beyond that? I think whenever, whenever we're in denial of something, it's because we don't want to have to do the hard work to fix it. Right. The, the people who realize climate change maybe is an issue, but continue to deny it, you're either an oil executive, which is a, obviously a slim minority people, right. or you're just like, I don't want to have, if, if, if we realize this is a thing we're, and we're the cause, we have to fix it. And I don't want to do the work. You know, it's the same thing with coming to terms with, um, um, systemic racism in our country. If we, if we acknowledge it's a problem in the history, then we have to do the work to untangle it. And you know, there's a lot of people don't want to have to think of that. You know, it, no, no, we're, I'm not involved. It wasn't me, it was somebody else, and let's just move on. I've sort of had this thought that there's also an element to this that it's difficult for a lot of people to understand a global catastrophe in which it wouldn't be just my city or my state or my country, but the whole world going through it at once. And then all of a sudden along comes COVID. Okay. So we've gotten a pretty damn pretty we've gotten a pretty darn good uh, understanding over the past year and a half about what a global crisis gets to be. And I, I hold out a certain amount of hope that in a strange and bizarre way, we now can envision catastrophe and the only difference is there is no inoculation for this one. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And, and you know, that's part of the thing that uh, to, to that point, you know, whenever we talked about, oh, we need to get every American vaccinated, we're like, well, we could get every American vaccinated, but if the rest of the world, you know, 
talk about some of the countries in, in South Africa, Namibia, I think in South Africa, and those are, those are some of the better off countries in Africa, are at five to 10% vaccination. Well, as long as that exists, that just is gonna allow, you know, we've seen how quick this virus mutates and how increasingly other variants are gonna be resistant to the vaccine. So it doesn't matter until we're all in it together. And it is a similar thing to climate change, you know, and to that point in Minnesota, it's easier to say, well, we don't have to worry about sea level rise or maybe being on fire as much as California, although we saw that Minnesota can be on fire too. Yeah. Um, but we actually do fare a little bit better in a warmer world than coastal regions or, or areas that are uh, in desert areas of, of Southern Africa, Australia, um, that are just gonna get even drier. But it is gonna be our problem at some point when we have climate refugees and other things and you know, in an unstable world. You know, this, people don't think about the picture of how famine will lead to war and all sorts of other things that we can't just isolate ourselves from at some point. And we don't wanna have to get to that point. Uh, where we have to figure out how to inoculate ourselves right. or, or try to fix that. It's easier to prevent it than, than to fix it. You, um, you, you're talking about the world. A lot of us can talk about the world. You've actually traveled the world looking at what's happening to animal populations and others. Um, in this series we're doing at the Minneapolis Foundation about climate reaction, we're looking at this intersection of, of climate and equity. One of the things that we'll say that seems pretty abstract to people is there are going to be a lot of climate refugees. You just mentioned that. Take us to one of these places around the world you've been and help us put a face on, on that. Who's going to be a climate refugee and what, that's, what is that going to mean? Some of it's obvious. You know, if you live in Bangladesh, for example, and you're at sea level and, you know, they get, they get uh, monsoon seasons, a normal part of their their weather uh, that they get flooding, but that's going to get worse along with sea level rise and stronger, more uh, intense storms that are producing even more rainfall and flooding. Those people are going to have to go somewhere. We know that that's already an unsettled part of the world. You've got India, Pakistan, China, Bangladesh, all kind of fighting uh, over same resources. Um, so that's a little more obvious. Some of it, though, is, you know, think of a lot of central and southern Africa depends on agriculture. And we know that um, Botswana, Namibia, parts of South Africa, places that I've been to multiple times, um, is really at some of the highest risk of climate change because these are dry areas that have rainy and dry seasons. You know, we, th we think of four seasons in Minnesota. There, they really only have two. Hot and dry or really hot and wet. And those rainy seasons are less and less dependable. Um, they can go whole seasons with almost no rainfall now. Um, parts of Namibia uh, recently had a, a five-year drought where there were parts of that country that didn't have a drop of rain for five years. Well, what are those people gonna do? These are, these are societies that depend on agriculture. And so part of what we have to do, the richer countries of the world, is find ways to help these people economically so that they aren't refugees because then it becomes everybody's problem at some point anyway. Um, and that goes to, you know, you hear a lot about, well, why should we do this if China's not gonna do this and India's not gonna do this and Africa is not gonna do this? Well, the developing countries in the world have every right to say, well, you guys got to develop on all this dirty energy. Right. Well, why can't we? Or you need to help us develop in a clean way then. And that's where we have to invest in other parts of the world. And then you can look at that on a smaller scale, like I know that the Minneapolis Foundation is doing, and say, how, how do we do that in our own cities? You know, how do we sit, go to poor parts of, of Minneapolis and say, well, if these people want solar panels, well, that's expensive. How do we do that? 
you know, somebody has to, somebody, some of us who have the means have to step in and invest in, in that infrastructure. This, this issue of um, developing countries and what they're doing is a really interesting and perplexing one on this because you know every school kid um, in the country has done some sort of project on don't uh, tear down the rainforest, I get it. But let's step back and look at our own country. We are sitting here on the downtown riverfront looking at the Mississippi that at one point was filled with logs coming down to the mills, that's how Minneapolis got here, and it was from deforesting the northern part of the state. Which is supposed to last for decades, by the way. They said, the lumber barons said there'd be enough white pine up there to last for decades, and I yeah. think it took all of nine or 10 years to wipe it all out. Right, when you've, when you've seen some of these parts of uh, well, give us an example of one of those. I mean, you were talking about Namibia, and I remember seeing something you did about giraffes there. Um, what's, what's a particularly troubling um, spot you've seen uh, on, on climate around the world? Um, I, I would say Borneo in Indonesia. It, the orangutan are, you know, are one of our cousins, one of the great apes, is really one of the great apes that's at the most risk for going extinct within either our lifetime or the next generations because they're slash and burn agriculture in, in Borneo. It's all rainforest or was supposed to be. And palm oil, illegal palm oil plantations and some that aren't legal or some that are legal are just wiping out the rainforest there and they use these slash and burn techniques that I think people are familiar with in the, in, in the Amazon too, for example. And rainforests are really vital carbon sinks for naturally taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, in particular there, because these are trees that, you know, are, are photosynthesizing year round. Whereas the boreal forests of North America and Asia and Europe are huge. We actually, you can actually see animations of carbon dioxide completely decrease during our summer because the trees absorb so much in the right, northern right. forest. But that's for what? If you're lucky, a tree in Minnesota has three months of good you know, photosynthesizing and then they sit dormant. So these year-round rainforests are really important. These are old trees too that do more than a younger tree. And it's Borneo, I'd say, but also Brazil right now. And again, getting into politics, they have um, a president who, yeah, he, he makes, you know, Trump look like a, a moderate, um, you know, and has been opening up the, the forest to all these illegal loggers and, and slash and burn techniques. And um, I was just reading an article um, in one of our meteorological uh, journals that was saying that the Amazon is already getting to that point where um, they're calling it a, a, a net zero as far as um, unable to really sequester carbon any longer because the climate's changing too. Right. So, you know, we think of, you cut down the forest, that's one thing, but eventually you hit a tipping point where now it becomes too arid because there's not enough rainforest to produce the moisture that produces the clouds, that produces the storms. And, you know, a lot of Southern and Eastern parts of the Amazon are, have been cleared for agriculture. And that's, you know, some of these topics of, you know, telling people, you know, we got to eat less meat and people, Making some of these connections a little bit uh, better, I think, are some of the things. I mean, people know that carbon dioxide's bad. It makes the earth warmer, the ice caps are melting. But I think getting to some of these things, why why is native prairie, let's look at Minnesota, to get to get back to our own, you know, instead of finger pointing, we have less than 1% of Minnesota's native prairie left. And that's, you know, you can look at our pioneer ancestor farmers as being just as bad if you want to, but it's not a good or bad thing. It's just, this is what people did and this is what people are doing in Brazil or Indonesia or Africa now, 
clearing the land for agriculture. Um, we cleared the land here for agriculture and those tall grass lands are actually huge carbon sinks as well. And we've mutilated most of that in the United States, not to mention the biggest cultivator of them, which was, you know, the bison. Um, so we need to, part of the solutions is we have to sort of restore as much of this as we can, whether it's forests or some of these grasslands, um, and, and, and make the connection to people. I'm not a vegetarian. I was for seven years, but you know, you got to make meat a special occasion thing. Cause it's not, people think, oh, it's the cow farts is really going to warm the planet. Right. Well, yeah, methane is an issue, but the biggest thing is the amount of land and water use that goes into producing a pound of, of meat versus, uh, the plants, you know, the, the, the full source and our health will probably benefit too. I asked you to give us something that was not working. So after depressing the heck out of us with what we need to know, give us something that's actually, um, that you see is actually working out there. What's, a, what's some progress that you see that's, that's taking place? You know, I, I, the educational element, I think, is something that has been really promising just even in the last five to 10 years is, is seeing how people are really starting to finally get it in our own country. Uh, and we need to keep pushing on that. We need to keep pushing it on adults. Um, but there are programs, you know, one of the many people I've gotten to meet that's been fascinating in the world is Jane Goodall. And the, yeah. The, that must have been very That cool. was cool. <laughs> that was cool. Um, and one of the things she, and they talk about a hopeful inspiration because it is easy to get depressed about this and be like, God, what can I do here at, you know, Boom Island in Minneapolis that's going to save the world? Um, and she, you know, before COVID, obviously, was traveling the world still 200 something days a year. So most days she's traveling um, to get out the word on what's happening to the planet because she talks about her experience of going to Africa in the 60s and she says, all those amazing things I saw don't exist anymore. Those animals are still there, but the great migrations and all these just things that we took for granted then are gone. Um, you know, look at like the black rhino population in Africa. 90% of it was wiped out, not over a long period of time of, of you know, European colonialization, but over really a 30 year period from the 60s to the 90s is when 90% of the black rhino population was wiped out. Um, so she's hopeful though, because she's, you know, she says, we don't have a lot of time. There is a narrow window, but we can still change things. And so she raises awareness and money for, for her institute, which does global stuff. And one of the things that they concentrate on, um, and this is key for conservation and climate change is we got to not just think big picture, but helping people economically around the world in, in poor areas. Go back to like the black rhino population or for her, chimps are near and dear to her. It's easy for us in the West to say you need to save those. Shame on you for, you know, wiping out their habitat or killing them off. But if you're just trying to feed your family, you know, you're thinking very short term, you know, and if somebody's offering you a thousand dollars for a rhino horn, and you've got four starving kids at home, you're going to make some very difficult right. decisions. And we need, to, we need to make sure that nobody has to make those kind of decisions. And that is where, and this is where you get into the finger pointing and what's fair or not is, you know, a lot of people in the West say, well, why should we? Well, we're, we benefited from, you know, a couple hundred years of colonialization and, you know, America was not isolated from that. You know, right. um, so th those, there's a lot of programs like that that are, that are boots on the ground around the world um, educating, but investing in communities, um, and and you know, Norway. Uh, the Norwegian government is 
I think there's a little guilt there because Norway is one of the largest oil producers in the world with North Sea oil, but they are investing heavily in environmental projects around the world. And to go back to Brazil, they've bought up, I, I don't know the exact number, but thousands, if not millions of acres of Amazon rainforest mm. and protected it. Um, so simple things like that around the world, you know, and there's an example of a rich country taking the initiative saying, yes, we have the means, so we need to do something. We can't just, Norway could very easily say, we're a country of four and a half million people up here where it's cold, you know, a warmer world, whatever. What does that mean to us? Um, but, you know, actually really saying, no, we need to do something. We have the means, so we, it's up to us to take an initiative. So you've been around the world, but you're a lifelong Minnesotan. Worked in Duluth before coming here, born St. in St. Cloud Paul. State, Duluth, my first job, and then back to Minneapolis. The triangle, yep. You did it all. You've even got the perfect name for Minnesota, <laughs> so it's, it's great. And people actually thought that that name was made up initially when I went on TV. I'm like, no, uh-uh. And now I have a whole nother, speaking of the younger generation, gets a kick out of, my full name is Sven Olaf Sungard. Okay. So they think I'm named after Frozen characters. I'm like, no, this is way before that. <laughs> Olaf Sungard was my great-grandpa who came over from Norway. So that, that is great. Okay, so you mentioned that about Norway. Let's talk about Minnesota because I hear people say this, oh, global warming, not a bad thing. I can use, you know, 10 degrees warmer in the winter. I'm a cross-country skier. I know a little bit about what isn't happening, but... What do you see happening here? And, and, and I think especially help us figure out what are some of the actions we can be taking. Yeah, so Minnesota, is, yeah, a warmer world. Some people might have a hard time complaining about warmer winters in Minnesota, but it does have impacts on other things, things that we, you know, the polar bear is sort of the international um, mascot for climate change we think of, but I always tell people in Minnesota, I said, we can think of the moose. That's our iconic, big, our, the largest animal in our state, and they're really at risk of disappearing. Will they go extinct from the planet? No. Uh, they'll be fine in Alaska and Canada, at least for a while, but Minnesota, northern Minnesota is really the southernmost part of their range, and we're, species like that that are on the edge of where they can exist are the ones that are most vulnerable. And I don't, I sure don't want to go to the Boundary Waters or Isle Royal and not see a moose anymore, um, but they're really at risk. And the biggest risk, one, they overheat when it's above 55 degrees in the summer, like a Norwegian might, or <laughs> <laughs> above, it's, it's, I think it's 23 degrees in the winter. They have a thicker coat. So they're really susceptible to the, if you have these big swings in temperatures and just warming up things a little bit, but it also makes them more vulnerable to parasites, winter ticks. You know, it's supposed to get down to 30, 40 below in northeastern Minnesota routinely, and that wipes out ticks on the moose. So instead, they're itching themselves on trees, spending time doing that, being irritated instead of, of, of foraging for what little food there is in the winter, and they're becoming anemic and other things. So and not to mention deer are moving north. A lot of people don't realize white-tailed deer are not native to the North Shore of Minnesota. They weren't there until the 1940s. Wow. A warmer world plus us moving in and creating optimal deer habitat, gardens, fields, farm fields, because they, there's nothing for them to eat in a, in a native forest of northeastern Minnesota. And, and white-tailed deer carry diseases that moose are susceptible to, oh, right. the white, that moose are, yeah, that white-tailed deer don't catch, like the chronic wasting disease and other things. So those are, talk about solutions, those are some things where I know the DNR and some other groups are really working to see, okay, where is there a big overlap in white-tailed deer and moose, for example? How can we prevent that? Can we 
you know, have increased deer harvest in those areas or relocate those moose to where there are fewer deer. So a lot of what we have to do is adapt to the new norm. What we've seen this year is going to be with us more and more frequently. There's nothing we can do about what, you know, we've experienced this last summer, for example, that is going to happen more. But just imagine a worse summer like this. Imagine 30 years from now that our drought is worse or it's even hotter in the summer or that instead of air quality alerts, you know, two weeks of our summer, now it becomes an all summer thing, kind of like what California experiences. Let me ask a rookie meteorology question about this. Um, You know, there's always this saying, if you don't like the weather in Minnesota, stick around, it'll change in a couple of minutes. But it actually doesn't seem like it's doing that anymore. It does seem that when we get a cold snap, it stays longer, a heat spell, it stays longer, a dry one that stays longer. That's just me observing that. Is there any truth to that? And is that part of what's going on? You're not really a rookie then. That is, that's, a, that's, a, that's a measured thing. So, and, and we're trying, to, there's, there's some de- exciting debate about this actually in the meteorology community about what exactly is causing that. Is it a climate change link? We think it is. Um, there's one theory that's somewhat controversial that we're warming the Arctic so fast that what's happening is the jet stream is becoming weaker because the jet stream, like any wind, is created by temperature difference. And so our mid-latitude jet stream is dependent on the difference in temperature between us and the Arctic. And if you warm the Arctic twice as fast as Minnesota's warming, which is already twice as fast as what equatorial areas are warming, now you decrease that temperature difference. And so the jet streams are becoming more wobbly and we are getting stuck in these patterns. And it's one extreme to the next. Um, And I, Three years ago, I think it was 2018, I, I used this as a clear example. I, I didn't like the fact that it happened, but it was like, this is, this is what's happening, and you need to see how these extremes, so it's not as clear-cut as, oh, Minnesota's just going to have milder winters. We're going to have more. We're an extreme place. Our extremes are becoming more right. extreme. We went from April 2018, people remember we had two blizzards, snowiest April ever, coldest April ever, to then the fourth hottest May on record. We literally, we joke about jumping from winter to summer. We literally that year went from March to June in a 30 day period, statistically. Um, And that's, you know, again, that for us, it's uncomfortable, but for our plants and animals that have evolved to Minnesota's normal climate, that could be too much, you know, a deal breaker. When when you look at a, a temperature map of the country, there's always this depressing um, <laughs> trough that goes over Minnesota. Yeah. And I, I, you know, when you look at a map, you think, hmm, is this maybe that Hudson Bay's up there and the Arctic winds are coming off Hudson Bay and coming down and making us colder? First off, <laughs> why is this colder? So there is. And the, how is that changing? So there is actually, a, there is a climate um, Spend, why is it cold in Minnesota? <laughs> there is a connect. Well, partly the, the ba- basic thing I tell, I'll, I'll tell my students is pull up like a Google map satellite view. And what do you see between us and the North Pole? What do you see? Be- what do you see between us and the Gulf of Mexico? Gulf of Mexico. There, I mean, there's oh, no, I mean, there, yeah, there's no mountains in between. Yeah, there's yeah. no, there's no modifying force. Um, Hudson Bay freezes over, even though it's saltwater because it gets so cold. So it's basically one big flat plain. So we have a, a, a free range for our, the coldest air on the planet to get here, but also the hottest air. And so that's why our extremes are becoming more extreme. And 
to get to the point that overall though winters are warming our winters are warming faster than anywhere else in the lower 48 the only place it's warming faster is alaska because it has arctic real estate and the arctic is is the fastest but a great example this february everybody was you know complaining and moaning about the 10 cold days we had in february which were legitimately cold but they broke no records here which should tell people something but everybody pointed to the the climate deniers like oh look at all the records broken in texas that tells you that there's no global warming i'm like no actually think about it how did that air when it was here break no records but it's breaking records there Hmm. that tells you that that air doesn't belong there so to get back to these bizarre jet stream patterns you know there there are impacts that we're having on the atmosphere that we're still trying to understand you know something like that's going to be infrequent but it doesn't matter if that happens once every five years and texas doesn't get its act together which they don't they tend to yeah you know retrograde rather than progress that's going to be a problem for them and their, their whole power grid we saw what that did and then not to mention they get hurricanes and flooding and everything else there's parts of the southern u.s which are two feet above normal for rainfall for the year you know whereas we had our worst drought in 33 years that finally broke and to get back to the weather does change here and that's why we are a little bit in a better spot than california for example they don't the weather doesn't change that much so you can get into a 10-year drought like they're in whereas at least here we know summer ends no matter what sometimes right. summer will end <laughs> uh, october november it doesn't matter it's gonna it's gonna catch up to us but we just ended our hottest summer ever in the twin cities and people were perplexed by well wait there were more 90s and 100 degree days in 1933 and in 1988 and there were but again another sign of of a climate change caused warm summer we were consistently warm you know 1988 had your normal variation still where you'd get a cool break for five days in the 70s we didn't get anything like that we'd get one or two days this year maybe um or or you know some of those coolish days you get at the beginning of june or end of august that are only in the 60s we didn't get any of that this year um and our nights are a lot warmer all things that show that a greenhouse effect is really um amplified and and just looking at maps of the northern hemisphere comparing temperatures this year to 1988 to 1933 is really crazy because the whole northern hemisphere is hot there are a couple little blue blobs, but that tells you there's just a lot of heat in the system. Yeah. So people have been asking me, for some reason people have in their minds that when we have a hot summer, we get a really cold winter. And I'm like, that's hard to imagine with the amount of heat in the Northern Hemisphere. All, you gotta throw out all the old rules. The old rules go out the window. So when somebody says, oh, I heard La Niña's are cold winters. We don't get cold winters anymore. Uh, you know, I did an analysis of the last two decades. Only one in four winters have been cooler than normal and only by a degree or two three-fourths of our winters in the last 20 years are all warmer than normal and by bigger margins than any of the cool winters are below normal. Let me talk about your voice, (laughs) how you use your voice. You know, I used to be a journalist and my job was to report and not to talk about it. Um, And then I obviously now talk a lot about issues. You had a job on television and now you don't. And I follow your Twitter feed. Everybody, by the way, should be on your Twitter feed. It's awesome. <laughs> but it's clear. I mean, you're, you are not pulling any punches right now. What has that meant for you? And did you feel when you were in media that you were not able to use your voice as much? And I'm especially interested in this and how so many people who are listening are trying to figure out their own voice. Yeah. You see a catastrophe. You want to get up and move. There are limits to what you think you can say or what's acceptable at a dinner party or whatever. 
what's it feel like to be able to just say it and say it clearly? And uh, what does that insight give to the rest of us as we think about that? I mean, the first word that comes to mind is probably pretty obvious, liberating. Um, but we, you know, and I have for a long time, even when I was still in TV, talked a lot about the climate change issue, even though we were always told, uh, you know, maybe tone it down a bit because not that any, you know, a, a boss disagreed with it, but, you know, it's whether you were working for a newspaper or a television station, these are for-profit companies and they make their money based on keeping the most amount of their viewers um, happy or watching yeah. or reading. Um, and so you don't want to anger, even if, even if it's the truth, you don't want to anger certain people. So that gets into, you know, normally that's a fine balance, but we're in these crazy times where, you know, there are these points where everybody kind of needs to speak up a little bit, you know, right. um, January 6th and the day after from a political standpoint, yeah. you know, uh, people don't want to get political, but that's a time where people should probably be like, okay, that's wrong. There should be some accountability. Yeah. Um, and the climate change issue is, is one that we're, you know, you, people can't be silent anymore on it. Um, it's just too important and we have to do big things really quickly um, in order to fix it. And, and so, I guess I look at it, you know, do I want to get involved? Like, I wouldn't tweet anything about the mayor race or policing in Minneapolis. I'm also not an expert on that. Um, but I do feel like in a field that I'm knowledgeable on, climate and, and meteorology, it's, you know, not just should I talk about it. It's imperative that I talk about it. You know, I'm, I'm being irresponsible if I'm not talking about, you know, one of the biggest crises of our time. Um, Similarly, as I would think uh, uh, a doctor who's an expert in, in immunology should be talking about COVID and vaccines and debunking, you know, the misinformation that's out there. So um, should anybody be using their voice? Uh, no, but, it, you know, it depends on what your area of expertise is or or how you want to get involved. But it doesn't have to be you can speak up on climate change without being a climate scientist if you're, you know, a parent says, this is an important issue and we need to do something about it. This is what the science says, you know, not, not just somebody taking a pile of misinformation saying, well, we should do this because I saw this on someone's Facebook page. Well, I'm really glad you're using your voice. It's great. Let me ask you just a final question. If somebody handed you $1,000 to give to any group that was really making an impact in Minneapolis, in Minnesota, around the world, where would you send it? Oh boy, that's a good question. I'm supposed to say the Minneapolis Foundation, right? No, no, no. We, we wouldn't. We, we get the money out to other people. Oh yeah. Um, well, yeah. A lot of foundations go to you guys, right? Yeah. What 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 we often do is that somebody will say, "I want to be uh, be generous." They'll open up a donor advice fund with us. Then we work with them on organizations. So I'm asking them the question so that our team, when uh, our donors say, "Where should they?" From, from an international perspective, I, you know, I, we talked about this. Um, the Jane Goodall Institute is really incredible, and specifically she has this Roots and Shoots program, which is specifically working with youth around the world. It's not just in developing countries. It's getting um, you know, kids in Minneapolis uh, to be appreciative of the natural world and wanting to do something about climate change and, and investing in, in, their, in their education and helping them um, see their potential to to have an impact on the world, um, but also you know helping kids in a village somewhere in in 
Tanzania, specifically where she was working. And it really seems like you get a lot for your money there. And, and I'm not just saying this, but I learned a lot by doing stories with the Minneapolis Foundation about some of the projects you guys are working on that are not, you know, they don't work for you, but you're funding them. So the solar panel project, for example, I learned a lot about, I knew a lot about solar power and how that works, but just um, all the issues facing people of color, specifically when it comes to, you know, for example, this company wants to use um, whenever possible, people of color who are, will install the solar panels on roofs and the problems that they run into, simple things that, you know, where a mayor or somebody can get involved perhaps, or the city council, you know, we used to have um, an electrical, um, an electrician school that was based in, in, in Minneapolis. Now it's out in Andover or something. Right. Well, if you don't have a car or reliable transport, how are you gonna get from North Minneapolis there every single day to take the proper training to be able to get these high paying jobs? So all these, you know, I, it was supposed to be a 45 minute shoot and I sat there for two hours listening and talking with, you know, really these leaders in, in all this um, in the in a backyard in February. And I just thought it was it was inspiring to me, too. Um, and so, yeah, in a little bit of money can help these different projects a lot. You know, a thousand dollars isn't really a lot of money, but it actually can go a long way with some of these, especially community projects. Great. So you gave us a great international, a great local project yeah. for where the so what we'll do in your name is send five hundred to Jane Goodall and five hundred to that local solar project. Oh. And just and thank you an enormous amount, Sven. Your you. voice right now is about as important as anybody around here. You've got a ton of credibility. You know what you're talking about. You're a Minnesotan and uh, it's just super critical right now. So thank you so so very much for uh, for getting your voice even stronger than ever. Thank you and thanks for all the work you guys are doing. Thanks. And that's our guest host, R.T. Ryback, and our guest, Sven Sungard. If you enjoyed this podcast and looking for ways to become a sponsor, please contact me. You can find my information on our website under the About section and click on Our People. Thank you to Sarah Gillen, John Coco, Darlin Benjamin, and our guest host, R.T. Ryback. This is Sue Pak Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.